On the Lean Out Podcast, we spend a lot of time delving into the big problems of our age. But one thing we haven't paid enough attention to is the forces that distract us all from solving these problems. What are the bread and circuses of our time? Well, my guest on the podcast today says we are all enthralled to shopping and that this shapes our culture in profound ways. We are a society consumed by consumerism and nothing can really stop us. Nothing can stop it. Paul Burton is an award-winning Canadian journalist and the editor-in-chief of the Hamilton Spectator newspaper. His debut book is Shopomania, Our Obsession with Possession. Paul Burton is my guest today on Lean Out. Paul, welcome to Lean Out. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for making the time to come on. I loved your approach in the book, which is quite entertaining. This is not the typical approach for the conversation around consumerism, which often tends to be somewhat moralizing, somewhat extreme kind of epitomized by an anecdote you tell in the book of billionaire Elon Musk announcing in 2020 that he was going to sell almost all of his possessions and not own a house. Take me back to the pandemic and lockdown. What made you decide to tackle this topic in a book, which I understand you've been thinking about for many years? Well, I mean, I suppose the pandemic offered me the time to do it (laughs) rather than, say, watching Game of Thrones or, or whatever people were doing. But I was also intrigued by the fact that we couldn't go to the malls as we've been going to for decades, or we couldn't go to the stores as we've been going to for, for centuries or millennia, but we still found a way to shop. And in, in my case, actually became easier than ever, right? You'd order something one day and it'd come the next almost. It was it was fantastic and frightening at the same time. And so, you know, I realized that we are a society consumed by consumerism, pardon the expression. And nothing can really stop us. Nothing can stop it. Mm. And so the question arises, well, when when and how will it it all end, if ever? Mm -hmm. And you have really meditated on this topic in depth. I was struck by just how much you covered in this book. Uh, You come up with some roughly 60 new terms on our obsession with shopping. One of the ones that stands out first is this phenomenon of shopification. This really is striking to me. I just got back from a vacation. So walk us through that concept. Shopification is a term that I coined to explain how, in the case, as I use the example in the book, is the small town I grew up in, in Kleinberg, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto. It was a dusty little town that had a butcher shop and a bakery and a hardware store. Really everything that the local farmers and residents would need at any particular time. And now it's a sort of a tourist town with fudge and ice cream and clothing, the local residents, you know, they need to go now to the to the new malls that have popped up in farm fields nearby to shop for meat or vegetables. Mm. I had never noticed that before, and it, it's so, so true. You also talk about shopability, how places like hospitals and art galleries are now sites of consumption where they weren't decades ago. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I think everyone's got on the bandwagon and said, hey, people like stuff which is a sort of a reoccurring theme in the book. But so if you can sell something to someone, people will either either buy it because they're bored or they'll buy it because they want it or they'll buy it because they want to be a part of a group. For example, 
it's not just hospitals or museums, but look at the merch, if you'll pardon the expression, that's sold at concerts. I mean, it's incredible. I, I, I saw here in Hamilton recently, there was a K-pop concert, and I think they sold 800 sort of lightsabers or something like that at $80 a piece to these fans. Like, wow someone's figured it out what people want and how to sell it and when to sell it. And I think, you know, the museum shop is a good example. You've, you've been to the museum. It's always on the way out. It's kind of hard to avoid. And when you get there, you go, wow, they got a lot of neat, neat stuff here. And I too have been uh, tempted and taken in by many of the things that they offer. Yeah. And I think we're, we're all part of this. I, I think you do such a good job in the book of pointing that out. You also talk about how some items are now shoppable that never used to be. And the, the classic case, of course, is water. Walk me through your thinking on that. Yeah, water is the real tragedy, in my opinion. People came for a visit. You'd give them, if you weren't giving them a cup of coffee, you'd give them a cup of water, glass of water out of the tap. If you drink water at home, you drink a glass of water out of the tap. If you, you know, if, if you're in the park, you sort of lean into the fountain or or wherever you are, you're drinking water with without a package. And now it all comes in a package. And this is the this is the essence of shopability. They're, they're just repackaging an item that was formerly free or free-ish. I mean, water is not free, but and making it an object of desire and, and a branded object. So now we say, no, no, I don't want that kind of water. I want this kind of water. I don't want that shape of bottle. I want this shape of bottle. So as I say in the book, Canada is shipping water to France and France is shipping water to Canada on huge freighters that are passing each other in the night. I, I just find it insane. I mean, it's it's the reality of a modern functioning economy, but you know, it does make you wonder. Mm, indeed. You also talk about some of the countercurrents here, which I'm super interested in. And so one of the things you talk about is the de-shopathon, something Marie Kondo famously recommends, <laughs> suggesting we get rid of anything that does not spark joy. Does this trend of decluttering help us at all get where we need to go? I, you know, I don't think it does, actually. I think we all want to declutter because we've, we've all got too much stuff or all rich people in a in a developed world have too much stuff. But as soon as you've decluttered, then you have room in your closet or your garage or your living room for more stuff. So, you you know, we're tempted to redecorate or to redo our things. And I, I find that interesting. And I, I too am susceptible to it. One of the things that keeps me from buying stuff is that I have a reasonably small house and only so many things fit in it. And I don't have a garage. So I just can't buy things like too many bicycles or kayaks or all the stuff that we keep in our basements or our garages. But if I did have more space for it, or, you know, I had a, a, a bigger house, a bigger closet, I might be buying more stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really struck me reading the book was just how much time consumerism takes researching the stuff, purchasing it, returning it, decluttering it, replacing it. You know, you have this image of a packed mall parking lot on a sunny Saturday afternoon, and it makes you think about how consumerism really takes us away from other experiences, family, friends, art, entertainment, hobbies, religion, exercise. And in the book, you quote Thoreau, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I call life, which is required to be exchanged for it. So let's talk about kind of how we reclaim our lives without going to the extremes that we see in this conversation, which you've avoided in the book. Yeah, I think it's a good question. And I mean, we're not going to get rid of shopping. As I say in the book, shopping is what makes us human. 
it made civilization, it may have made languages and math, and, and it certainly has been responsible for innovation and exploration and so many other things. So we're not going to get rid of it. People want stuff. On the other hand, I think that, you know, we forgo a lot of the joys of life, the simpler pleasures of life, like a sunny day in the summer or, a, you know, a swim in the ocean for a trip to the shopping mall or the tourist area in a in a city. And I think that it's not all bad. I mean, th- those are usually often social events. I mean, especially maybe not for me, because I, I tend to just go and get something and get out. But I think for a lot of people, shopping is a social event. It's probably a good thing. And groups of friends spend the whole day shopping. And I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's something good to be said about it. <laughs> but I do think that when we look back on our lives, no one's going to say, well, I should have done more shopping. Mm. And there's an element to this conversation that I want to try to dig into here, which is the sort of elitism around the counter movement. So at the end of the book, you referenced two bloggers, the minimalists, actually went and saw them speak in Vancouver. These are two guys who were kind of drowning in consumerism and debt and divested themselves of their belongings, got out of debt, got into shape, quit working full time and now have become these kind of evangelists for that movement. Now, You can see that working on an individual level, but it's hard to see it working on a societal level. And one of the reasons why is something you've drawn attention to in this book is the people doing the crazy amount of consuming are the 1%, the royal from Brunei in the book that you note, who's buying so many luxury cars that most of them end up melting in the heat and becoming unusable. I mean, how do we address that elite phenomenon of consumerism? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, as you mentioned, I kind of pick on the 1% and certainly the famous 1% in the book, you know, Paris Hilton has gave away 500 pairs of shoes because she said she never wears anything twice. And, you know, Tori Spelling had something like 50 storage units and Charlie Watts, who the late Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones had a collection of antique cars and uh, vintage cars, but he never had a license to drive. So what is it that does it for these people? Well, those people have too much money and too much time, I guess, and they're looking for a diversion. I don't think they're looking for the meaning of life, but they're looking for a diversion and they have the money. And I think that every human, including me, is susceptible to that. You know, my childhood friend and my brother during the pandemic both bought a 50-year-old snowmobile independently of each other. And I looked at them and I said, you bought a snowmobile? The 50-year-old snowmobile was a pretty crappy piece of machinery 50 years ago, let alone now. But somehow I was intrigued by it. I looked at them and I thought, oh my goodness, I want one too. I mean, this is the thing. Yeah, people want stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sort of back to the extremes. I mean, I'm thinking this is a topic I've been super interested in. I actually went to Ireland to find, I don't know if you've ever heard of the moneyless man, this man who lived without money for, I think it was about five years. He was a columnist for The Guardian and at that point living with no technology. So writing his columns out by hand and mailing them into The Guardian. So I found him living in this farmstead in Ireland and there was no electricity, obviously no Wi-Fi. People could come and live there for free if they wanted to. And so it's very extreme, but very interesting example. And I wonder how you think Do you think those extreme examples of abandoning consumerism help us 
Or do you think that they are just too extreme for most of us to relate to? Yeah, I think the latter. I don't think most of us can relate to it. And as I said earlier, I I don't think we can abandon consumerism or shopping. I think there's lots of good things to be said about it. I just wonder whether how much is too much. So somehow we need to find a a balance between him and, you know, Paris Hilton's 500 shoes. (laughs) That seems very reasonable. (laughs) And one of the things you point out is is the sort of concept of shapostals. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Instagram, of course, is now one of the chief channels for promoting consumerism with influencers. But you point out in the book that the legacy media also plays an important role in perpetuating consumerism. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, well, every you need only look at any, I'm a newspaper editor myself, so I know that you know, if there's a new iPhone, we're likely to write a story about it. If, certainly, if, if local people have invented something, whether it's popular or not, we're gonna we're gonna give them a leg up. We are obsessed with brands as much as the brands are obsessed with themselves. So we buy into that, whether it's conscious or not. And every daily newspaper, every legacy media is helping brands advertise themselves daily. It's not as overt, perhaps, as modern influencers, but it's certainly there and it's certainly always been there. We write about cars, we write about decor, we write about stuff. The reason we do that is because those stories are what people want to read. Mm. And while we're on the topic of the media, I, I did want to get some of your thoughts on kind of where we're at right now. You've been in the profession more than 30 years. You are an editor-in-chief at the Hamilton Spectator. When you look at sort of the state of where our media is at right now, how do you think we're doing? <laughs> we're doing as best as we can in a tough, tough business. I'm talking about legacy media now. Newspapers mm-hmm. are in a tough spot. Frankly, I think they do. I'm, of course, biased, so you wouldn't expect anything else. I think they do a great job informing their community as best they can. So in the old days, we used to, a newspaper like the Hamilton Spectator or any small daily newspaper, you know, we cover television and movies. We don't do that anymore because someone else does it for us, right? But we do cover our communities well. We're interested in prosperity, too. We're interested in the prosperity of the community. So we do help businesses. And, well, we don't consciously help brands, but we unconsciously help them, as I say. Mm -hmm. And when we look at sort of trust in media right now, it's quite low. What do you think is our biggest challenge in terms of regaining the trust of the Canadian public right now as the media? I think the biggest challenge is the fact that social media tends to be so sort of nasty and negative, right? So... I think that most people who are critical of legacy media actually have a lot of respect for it, but legacy media make mistakes every day and we do dumb things. Some of them we regret and some of them are just necessary, but because it's so much easier to criticize legacy media and say things like fake news or that's not true or shoot the messenger. And because that information is is spread so much more easily. It's much more, and because we have a, a lot of high-profile people spreading that kind of news, it's becoming more and more difficult. And, and I, I don't see an answer to it in the future. I think I think that people will, will regret and already do the loss of more local reporters covering, keeping politicians honest, for lack of a better expression. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I did want to ask you, speaking of local news, there was a recent kind of newsworthy incident involving the spectator. Spectator published coverage around an arrest in a home invasion and kidnapping, which reported the fact that the suspect was a local community organizer who had supported defunding the police. A group of incoming city councilors and school board trustees accused the paper of contributing to anti-Black racism and demanded an apology and threatened not to grant interviews to the paper until this happened. In our larger zeitgeist in the last couple of years, the response to charges of racism has often been to issue an immediate apology. You did not do that. You defended the coverage of the paper. Walk me through your thinking a little bit on that. Yeah, well, we would only issue an apology if we made an error, if we got the facts incorrect. So we didn't do that here. The, the, the story was factual, and we correct our mistakes promptly whenever we're informed of them. And, you know, we do react to people who are upset about stories if we can. You know, we've had a lot of talks about that. So I expect that we're still discussing, okay, how will we do this going forward? How do we balance our journalistic discipline with the changing nature of society? And so those conversations are go- ongoing I expect that they will change how we do things. I'm just not sure how yet. As I say, we can't apologize for something that we haven't quite analyzed what we've done yet. I mean, it's it's easy on social media to say, you guys screwed up, but we have to be careful. We've got lots of readers and we've got lots of other things happening. So we have to sort of think about, okay, if we do this, that means what for the next time? And indeed, will we actually be able to live up to it? Because in the end, we're all about simply information and transparency. And when when I worry about the things that we do, it, it's not really what we do as much as what we don't do so or what we don't say. And if we have information, we tend to share it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you as well about our literary culture in this country. Your father, of course, famous author Pierre Burton, and he published more than 50 books in his lifetime, very active in literary circles, former chair of the Writers' Union of Canada. He was also a staunch defender of free speech, saying that if we don't allow nutbars free speech, we can't call ourselves a democracy. This is one of the chief tensions of our time right now. What are your thoughts on how our literary community is doing with regards to that issue of free speech in this country? I think it is a very, very tough issue at the moment. I think that we're quite lost on it because of hate speech and because of the misery that's being visited upon people on social media. And I don't think that we figured it out. I think we're in a hugely interesting part of our history in terms of that. I don't know where it's going to lead. Obviously, as a newspaper editor, I'm a big believer in free speech, and I agree with what you quoted my father saying, but there have to be some limits to it. And where will it end if we don't have this discussion or we don't put some limits on what people can say? And that's basically what we've done in the newspaper business. We say, okay, yeah, they should be able to say that, but they shouldn't be able to go right over the deep end. And that's where we are now. I don't know where we'll end up. And so much of this conversation today has been about values and bringing this back to the book. I'm, I'm thinking about the writer, Johan Hari, who was on the podcast earlier this year. And he talks in the conversation about depression, about junk values. And one of the junk values he talks about is consumerism. And in your book, one of the things you advocate for is this idea of durability in what we're consuming. That's a different value than we hold right now. What might that look like going forward? Well, I have a pair of shoes that I wear regularly 
that my mother bought for me 40 years ago, right? So obviously, they're not the only pair of shoes I have or have had over 40 years. But I remember when she gave them to me, they had a little tag in them saying these shoes should last you a lifetime. And they have. And that's pretty incredible for a pair of shoes to last one more than 40 years now. And I think, okay, if those shoes can last 40 years, my feet haven't grown in 40 years. So why don't I just keep up? That's just one example. Why is it that I buy a toaster every year? I make toast every day. So maybe that's the nature of toasters. But, you know, I think when my when I was a kid, we had toasters for five years or maybe 10 years and a lot more people using them than me. And why can't I get the toaster repaired? Maybe I could get the toaster repaired, but you and I both know that it's it's cheaper just to buy a new one, which, you know, it's not really that cheap. This is the big point I make in the book. I mean, it's too easy to throw stuff out, right? We just getting rid of stuff per Marie Kondo is easy. And if we made it more expensive to throw, to just drag stuff to the curb or take it to the dump, or, you know, that this is very, very expensive. You know, the, the way that municipalities have to get rid of garbage or indeed nations, it's just terrible. You know, the garbage that is piling up in developing countries, much of it ours, just because we got tired of a t-shirt or a toaster. And so I think in the future, you know, I recently belonged to a tool library where you would just go down there rather than buy a shovel or a lawnmower, you'd go down there every week and borrow the lawnmower, cut your grass and take it back. Mm. And it was a great thing for me, but it, it closed and then I was without a lawnmower. <laughs> I think those are the kinds of things we need to be thinking of. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such interesting food for thought going into the holiday season, which of course is just a spree of consumerism for so many of us. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com.